Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnerless. It was a dark and stormy afternoon in New Jersey. A young boy runs home from school as quick as he can. He throws his books on the table, grabs a box of cereal from the cabinet, bounds into the living room, turns on the TV, just in time to watch Scooby-Doo. That is exactly how most of my weekday afternoons went in the 80s. They used to show reruns of Scooby-Doo on weekdays, I think on Channel 5, which became Fox in the New York, New Jersey market. I think it was Channel 5. It might have been WPIX Channel 11. Besides Disney cartoons, which were difficult to get a hold of unless you owned a VCR, which we didn't, Scooby-Doo was my favorite cartoon. I loved the color palettes. I loved the stories. I was a big fan of dogs. We had a couple of dogs in my family, so Scooby was the perfect companion for me. I always felt it was a slightly more sophisticated show even back then compared to the Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry slapstick style of cartoons that I was exposed to most of the time. As I got older, I came to see Scooby-Doo for what it was, a predictable mystery show. But still, there was something comforting about it. I knew how it was going to end all the time. There'd be a twist ending. I knew that there would be some crazy contraption that they would throw together to capture the villain. And I love crazy contraptions. I guess this stuff felt accessible because as a kid, these are the kind of mysteries that even I could solve. My favorite Scooby-Doo series was Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, where are you? I like that format the best. But pretty much you give me anything with Scooby in it, and I'm good to go. Laugh Olympics. Even Scooby and Scrappy were fine by me back in the day. Ah, Scrappy-Doo. The most polarizing figure in all of Scooby-Dom. I am very proud to say that. Nowadays, I'm not a big fan of Scrappy. But sadly, as I have mentioned on the podcast before, I was a big fan of Scrappy as a kid. I would run around the schoolyard in my Scrappy-Doo shirt, yelling puppy power at the top of my lungs. I was very popular. Very, very popular. On today's show, we're going to talk about the original and my favorite, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? We'll talk about the history of the show, we'll talk about the characters, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. So now, without further ado, let's start the show. Here's a little bit of trivia to start the show. The Scooby-Doo theme song was written by David Monk and Ben Raleigh and performed by Larry Marks. Now, although there are dozens of imitators who've come after Scooby-Doo who've copied their format, the original creation of Scooby-Doo was not as simple as it might seem. It actually went through many different incarnations, and the genesis of the idea began in that magical era, the 1960s. You see, things haven't changed much in the last 40 years. Parents were still freaking out that things were too violent for their kids, Today we have video games, movies, all that stuff. Back then, they had the same thing. Parents were complaining that all the cartoons on television were way too violent, especially the ones that were produced by Hanna-Barbera. As you might know, 
Hanna-Barbera was the studio that came to produce Scooby-Doo. So all these parents started freaking out, and they started this organization called ACT, the Action for Children's Television. And ACT wanted to stop all these really violent shows. And when you watch them nowadays, you would say, these shows aren't violent at all. But back then, these were really violent to them. I have no idea why. And these are shows like uh, Space Ghost, The Herculoids, Johnny Quest, all those really classic Hanna-Barbera shows were considered way too violent. So you get a couple of people screaming, and the people at Hanna-Barbera were like, well, maybe it's time we do something about it. So they started looking at shows that maybe they could base another show off of, and a real popular show at the time was Filmation's Archie. Now, Archie was based on the comic book Archie, the one that you see even today in your supermarket. It's usually in that little digest form. Well, Archie was, at the time, a very popular hit and not very violent. It starred a dog and a band of kids who played music together, so they thought this would be a very natural show to base another show off of. The show had a winning formula, after all. You had kids, music, you had the dog. What else could you want? It was a winning formula. It is this formula that Hanna-Barbera will first put to the test on its next project. In this next project, they wanted to create a mystery show, a show that would have young people solving mysteries. It would have music. It would have some sort of dog in it. Basically, they were hoping to rip off the Archie show, but add a layer of the Hardy Boys on top. So the people at Hanna-Barbera got to work, and their initial idea was to have a teenage pop band that would solve mysteries between musical numbers. Sounds like the perfect show, right? Well, they tasked the creation of this show to their two head writers, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who I've talked about many, many times as Ruby and Spears, who created Rubik, The Amazing Cube, and other shows that I've talked about. They also brought in a designer named Iwa Takamoto. Takamoto was a genius character designer. Not only did he come up with Scooby-Doo, but he also came up with the Jetsons dog Astro and Penelope pit stop. Later in life, he went on to direct what would become a very iconic film, the animated classic Charlotte's Web. Now, they decided to name the show after the name of the band, and the name of the band would actually go with the format of the show. It would be called The Mysteries 5. About the only thing this show had in common at this point with what the original product would turn out to be was that it would be a show about solving mysteries, and there was a dog. The Mysteries 5 would consist of five members, plus the dog. The members of the band were Jeff, Mike, Kelly, Linda, and Linda's brother, Dub Dub, or WW. Not sure which one that would be. I like Dub Dub but it's WW everywhere I've read it. The dog's name was Too Much, because he was just too much. Fortunately, as Ruby and Spears began to work on the show, it began to morph. Jeff and Mike were merged into one character that would eventually become Fred. Kelly became Daphne. Linda became Velma. And WW, or Dub Dub, became Shaggy. They also decided to drop the whole brother-sister thing, which I think was probably a good idea. Now, at the time, they were debating what kind of dog would Scooby be. And they finally decided on two breeds, the German Shepherd and the Sheepdog. Now, I know you're saying, wait, Scooby-Doo is a Great Dane. What happened? Well, they finally decided on a Sheepdog, but there was already a Sheepdog in the Archie series, Hot Dog. And they didn't want to get the two characters confused. It's a Ruby and Spears thought, well... They would prefer the German Shepherd or the Sheepdog because they thought if they used a Great Dane, it might get confused with Marmaduke. In the end, they were overridden by executives who decided a Great Dane is the way to go. Sometimes you just gotta look to the suits to get a fast decision. Now Takamoto, who was creating all the visuals, went to work trying to decide how would Scooby look. And he went to a dog breeder, talked to people who raised Great Danes, then decided to not listen to anything they said or... <laughs> or actually pay attention to any visual representation of Great Danes as we knew it. He made his legs bowed, he gave him the weird-looking chin. Scooby became a character 
unlike any dog we had seen before, which I think actually helped to make him more special. Now, when they showed their concepts to the high poobahs at Hanna-Barbera, they people thought it definitely sounded like a scary show, but they thought, well, then the Mysteries 5 probably wasn't the best angle to take. I would have loved to have seen some of this art from that phase, because it must have been much creepier than what we've come to expect from Scooby. At this point, the executives decided that the show should be called Who's Scared? Now that's Who's with a S-S-Scared. Everyone at Hanna-Barbera was pleased with the progress of the show, and they presented it to CBS. CBS took one look at it and thought the show was way too scary for kids. So there was a problem now. CBS didn't want the show. But they had put all this work into it. And they were pulling into the 1969-1970 television season, and they had a big hole in their Saturday morning lineup. So those two geniuses, Ruby and Spears, went back to the drawing board, dropped a lot of the more frightening aspects of the show, and came up with the show we know today as Scooby-Doo. So I guess the big question is, how did too much morph into Scooby-Doo? Well, it actually had nothing to do with Ruby or Spears, according to them. The head of children's programming at CBS, a guy named Fred Silverman, who is the person that the character Fred is named after, actually didn't like the name too much, and he was inspired by the Scooby-Dooby-Doo part of Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra. So at the whim of a TV executive, one of the most iconic cartoon characters was named, and the show was rechristened as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Now that's the popular story, but here's a little background on another show Hanna-Barbera had did in 1967 called Moby Dick. In Moby Dick, there is a character named Scooby the Seal, who is also voiced by the same person who voiced Scooby years later, Don Messick. So I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. Did they just borrow a name from a past character and pass it off as something new, then concoct a story to romanticize how they created it? I'm kind of guessing that that might be true, but I like the Strangers in the Night story better. Sinatra or no Sinatra, CBS loved the new concept, and on Saturday, September 13, 1969, it was a Saturday morning, of course, the first episode of Scooby-Doo premiered on CBS. The episode was called What a Night for a Night. Now, a lot of people thought, and rightfully so, that this show bore a striking resemblance to a show called Dobie Gillis. Dobie. Dobie Gillis was a really popular show back in the day. If you haven't seen it, you really should try to pick it up. If only to see Bob Denver pre-Gilligan. After watching Dobie Gillis, it'll become really apparent to you that these characters really bear more than a passing resemblance to the characters on that show. Fred is based on Dobie, Daphne on Talia, Velma on Zelda, and Shaggy is a dead ringer for Bob Denver's character of Maynard. They even look alike. Same sort of style and the little goatee soul patch thing. Now Scooby was groundbreaking in many ways and quite influential on other shows, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't acknowledge Dobie Gillis's influence on the show. In the same way that we can look at the Flintstones and thank the Honeymooners. Now the plot of Scooby-Doo Where Are You was certainly formulaic as I mentioned. Every episode almost began the same. The gang would be traveling somewhere. They would run into someone who was very creepy who would give them a mystery. They would decide to investigate despite the fact that they shouldn't. The clues will show that perhaps someone else is involved. They'll decide to use Shaggy and Scooby as bait. They'll have to motivate them by giving them food or Scooby snacks. They'll create this really elaborate Rube Goldberg-like control contraption to capture the ghost. The ghost or monster will get captured. They'll approach the guy, pull off the mask, and it will be someone who was referenced or we saw earlier in the show who had a motivation for doing it. So the whole trick of the show, after you became familiar with it, was watching the first five minutes to determine, oh, who's going to be the villain? Who's it going to be? And of course, the villain would always utter the very famous catchphrase, Yes, and I'd have gotten away with it too, if it wasn't for these blasted kids and their dog. The show was a big hit for CBS, and they were very happy with the performance of the show. So much so that they brought the show back for a second season in 1970. 
the eight episodes that were produced for the 1970 version of Scooby-Doo were slightly different than the first season. They were a lot more slapsticky. They're the episodes that have those songs whenever something's about to happen. That was the Archie show influence creeping back in. The one thing that was good about this season is that they actually complicated the mysteries somewhat. Sometimes throwing in strange red herrings, trying to throw you off the track of who the true perpetrator was. The show was so successful that in 1972 they decided to double the length of the show and rechristened it the new Scooby-Doo movies. The new Scooby-Doo movies, which were very different than the Scooby-Doo Where Are You series, was lousy with guest stars. That's the series that had the Harlem Globetrotters in it and Batman and Robin. Robin voiced by Casey Kasem again. It also had one of my favorite guest stars of all time, Don Knotts. That's right, Mr. Furley. The Scooby-Doo movies might have had a bit of continuity from the Scooby-Doo Where Are You series, but I actually think of it as a major departure from the original formula, enough so that I think we'll have to cover those in another show. Although Scooby-Doo borrowed liberally from Dobie Gillis in terms of characterization, the show would come to be an inspiration for dozens, maybe more than dozens of shows that would follow. Three of my favorite are Josie and the Pussycats, which goes back to the Mysteries 5 format of having a band play music, Speed Buggy, which was about a talking speed buggy, and Jabberjaws, which puts the laws of nature on its ear by having a shark buddy up with a band and solve mysteries. Now, I don't know too many sharks, but I do know they're good at things like fighting surfers, eating seals, and making me afraid to swim in all natural bodies of water. I watch Shark Week every year, and I don't remember ever seeing an episode where a great white shark solved a mystery. But this shark doesn't just solve mysteries. He, like, gets up on his hind fins and walks around. Now, I'm willing to accept that in a dog, because I've seen dogs get up on their hind legs. I've even seen dolphins get up on that back fin. Maybe it's because I find the idea of a shark that could walk around so terrifying, but this show made me lose a lot of sleep as a kid. Now, those were three pretty decent shows, and I wish I could say the list stopped there. But wait, there's more. You've got Goober and the Ghost Chasers, The Buford Files, it's Punky Brewster, Fang Face, The New Schmoo, The Pebbles and Bam Bam Show, Inch High Private Eye, The Funky Phantom, The Chan Clan, The Clue Club, Captain Caveman, and of course, Rubik the Amazing Cube. Some of these shows, like Captain Caveman and Josie and the Pussycats, went on to be cult hits in their own right, but none of them captured the original energy, cool art design, and interesting characters of the original masterpiece. Hey there, retro fans. This is Metagirl with the top five Scooby-Doo villains of all time. Number five, the Black Knight, who when unmasked turns out to be Mr. Wiggles, the museum curator. Number four, the Man from Mars, who when unmasked turns out to be Charlie, the world's most perfect robot. Number three, the Headless Spectre, who when unmasked turns out to be the farmer, Asa Shanks. Number two, the Phantom Shadow who, when unmasked, turns out to be Creeps and Crawls, Attorneys at Law. And the number one Scooby-Doo villain of all time is... The Ghost Clown, who, when unmasked, turns out to be Harry the Hypnotist. And that's the retroist top five Scooby-Doo villains of all time. This has been Metagirl. We talked about the creative geniuses who brought this show to life, and also the shows that were inspired by it. Now I'd like to talk about the talented voice actors who breathed life into these characters. Fred Jones, the leader of the Mystery Gang, is aptly voiced 
by Frank Megatron Welker. I've talked about Frank Welker before. He's a very famous American voice actor, and is probably most famous in later generations as the voice of almost every Decepticon in the Transformers. In fact, when you see these modern Scooby-Doo mysteries that are on TV nowadays, it is still Frank Welker voicing Fred, and in 2002 he took over as the voice of Scooby-Doo himself. Throughout the total run of Scooby-Doo, where are you? Velma Dinkley is voiced by Nicole Jaffe. Nicole retired in 1974 to take a job at the William Morris Agency, but she returned 30 years later to voice Daphne once again in the direct-to-video classics Scooby-Doo and the Legend of the Vampire and Scooby-Doo and the Monster of Mexico. In the first two seasons of the show, Daphne Blake actually had two actresses voicing her. The first was Stefaniana Christofferson. That is quite the handle. She was succeeded by Heather North. She stayed on as the voice of Daphne until 1985's The Thirteen Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. After 85, she would come out of retirement 15 years later to voice Daphne once again in some direct-to-DVD Scooby-Doo mysteries. The voice of Norville Shaggy Rogers needs no introduction. It's radio disc jockey and... American Top 40 legend Casey Kasem. Did you know that Casey Kasem also voiced Robin the Boy Wonder in the 1968 Batman series? He was also the voice of Peter Cottontail in the Rankin-Bass classic Here Comes Peter Cottontail. Last but certainly not least, Scoobert, yes, Scoobert, Scooby-Doo, was voiced by another voice legend, Donald Messick. Messick is famous for so many voices. Besides giving voice to Scooby, he also played Boo Boo Bear, in Yogi Bear, as well as Ranger Smith. He was the voice of the aptly named character Droopy. He played Astro on the Jetsons, Dr. Benton Quest in Johnny Quest, and he did the voice for one of my favorite characters, Muttley. Younger generations would be familiar with his work simply because he is the voice of Papa Smurf. From 1981 to 1990, Messick played Papa Smurf. Sadly, Messick passed away in 1997. Since then, four other voice artists have voiced Scooby-Doo. The first was Hadley Kay, who gave voice to Scooby on Johnny Bravo. Scott Innes took the reins as Scooby from 1998 to 2001. Neil Fanning voiced Scooby in the Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2 movies that were released. And Frank Welker, who had up till now been playing Fred, took over the role in 2002 and plays him still to this day. So although Don's not with us anymore, at least Scooby is still with a voice we can trust. Thanks for listening. For more retro fun, drop by The Retroist at Retroist.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Retroist. If you have a comment or a suggestion, you can email it to me at Retroist at Retroist.com. Thanks to Metagirl and her top five list. And thanks to all of you for listening. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a good weekend. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.